everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon, we're talking Sean Connery and a red Speedo. Join the sleaze. <laughs> We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over two years. There's something like 60-plus bonus episodes, as well as our bonus transmission series, where we talk about new-release genre movies, all of which are going, like, straight to rental right now, but we're still still talking about them all. Yep. Uh, Um... And speaking of which, we did have a lot of people make the jump this week, so we're going to awesome. uh, go through those now. So thanks to uh, William Zerno, Cat, uh, Oliver Ryan Bowes, uh, Alec Nelson, Stephanie Monahan, uh, Zachary Koz, uh, Oscar, Devin Ogaz, uh, Michael Leash, uh, Kyle Mares, John Flanagan, Michael Axu. Um, we're still going, James Harmon, <laughs> um, Aryan Varma, uh, and I think that's everyone. Wow, that's awesome. Amazing. Thanks, guys. So thanks so much to all of you for signing up. You go, hope you guys are enjoying, enjoying the bonus episodes. Um, yeah. that's, that's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is uh, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, I know you are. I see the stats. Uh, while you're listening right now, scroll down all the way to the bottom and give us a good old rating and review. Helps us climb the ranks over there and find new listeners that way. Yes, please. Really appreciate, we appreciate it. that as well. But that being said, welcome back to the show. Uh, as always, I am your host, Josh Lewis. And also, as always, joining me is my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Yeah, we are back. Uh, talking more movies this week. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time uh, you guys would have heard from us, and uh, we would have had Spencer Ryder on uh, yeah. talking about sort of um, Hong Kong uh, legends John Woo and Wong Kar Wai. We're doing the one Wong Kar Wai film I think that qualifies for this film or for the show, <laughs> yeah. other than uh, um, Ashes of Time. But we did uh, John Woo's uh, Vietnam War melodrama Bullet in the Head which uh, is basically like if the deer hunter had John Woo action sequences in it, and it is incredible. Uh, We had a long chat with Spencer about that one, and then we also talked about Fallen Angels, um, which was sort of like the deleted uh, element of Chunking Express about sort of like the uh, Hong Kong... Uh, underworld nightlife and it's like the basically Wong Kar Wai making uh, what another one of his dreamy romantic 
drama films, but about a character who feels like he has stepped out of John Woo's The Killer. Yeah. Uh, so we had a lot of fun talking about both of those films. And then last week, for your guys' bonus episode over on Patreon, we would have got real down and dirty. And we talked about some no-budget cult genre films. Uh, one, Combat Shock from 1986, kind of going off of Bullet in the Head's Vietnam War theme. Incredibly Combat bleak Shock. and depressing film. Yeah, Combat Shock is like more of a taxi driver or rolling thunder sort of like PTSD yeah. revenge style Mixed film. Mixed with eraser head. <laughs> Somehow. But yeah. Mixed with like these really low budget horror elements that are more just kind of downbeat and sad. And even when it gets into sort of like the violent revenge qualities, it's just the whole thing's just really depressing. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. not very exciting in any meaningful way. Uh, it's more just really bleak and, and tough to watch. Um, but oh, Deadbeat at it. Dawn is what we paired it with, <laughs> yes, um, which was more fun and is basically uh, just an Ohio guy using the uh, loaned money he got for film school tuition and just making his own, like, um, macho action 80s film, but with, uh, you know, just a couple of buddies. Yeah. Um, you got nunchucks, and, you know, and, and he's highly skilled with those bad boys. <laughs> it's, it's wildly entertaining. I, those movies were just, just crazy. Yeah. We had a lot of fun talking about that, especially cause deadbeat at dawn eventually like turns into a bit of a splatter film with him, like ripping out jugulars and doing yeah. like, these insane stunts that probably should have killed him. And especially cause we know how low budget the film was definitely were not done safely. <laughs> no, he definitely scraped, uh, get, got, got some skin off on that brick wall in the, in the mm-hmm. finale. But yeah, if you if you want to hear us talk about some really really grimy, no budget, gross exploitation films, we talked about Combat Truck and Dead Beat Dawn at the uh, Patreon last week. Um, Patreon.com slash Leesoids Podcast. If you guys are interested in that episode, but this week we've got a very special guest uh, joining us. He is a once and future film professional he is a sometimes freelance writer for cinemascope he also hosts a podcast called the roycast which breaks down uh, and recaps episodes of one of my personal favorite uh like recent shows succession but joining us this week is brendan boyle how you doing brendan i'm good what's up guys <laughs> nothing much Ready welcome to, to the show we're films. glad to have you yeah glad to be here as the uh, show goes, we have the guests bring the double features with them. And I know that you've you've had this one planned out for like a long time and it took me a while to kind of like slot it in. Um, but what two films have you brought with you this week and why do they pair together? One of the first things I set for myself as a project in quarantine was to finally work my way through all of the Parker novels. Parker is a character created by the prolific crime writer Donald Westlake wrote about under the pen name Richard Stark, a master planner of heists and a career criminal. So I picked the two films that I think are the most artistically, creatively successful films that have been adapted from those books, which have been adapted many times. The first is Point Blank from 1967, adapted from the first novel in the series titled The Hunter. And the second in our double feature is 1973's The Outfit, adapted from the third novel in the series of the same Nice. No, yeah, I, uh, cause I, I didn't know that actually, even though you sent me 
your write-up on Richard Stark's thing, I completely forgot that these two were written by the same guy. And then I was confused because it said Donald E. Westlake. And I was like, what's going on here? There is a, a double feature happening here because the writer is the same. And also, uh, but none of the movies actually use the name Parker. I imagine this is something we'll get into when we get into it. But like both of these films have different like last names for him. And it looks like almost every adaptation, except for some reason, the one with Jason Statham, which got to use the name Parker because it's literally <laughs> well, called there, Parker. There is a reason for this. Uh, this was actually, yeah. I think Westlake's preference, uh, which was that he wanted, you know, I think he had it in his mind that eventually there might be a full film franchise made of the Parker films. So he said, if you're just going to adapt one of the films, then don't use the name Parker, because I want to save that, you know, if, if somebody's going to do a proper series someday. So the 2013 mm. Parker film with Jason Statham was actually made after Westlake's death in 2009, which I think is, has that name. Oh, so they could get oh. away with it. <laughs> right, right, well, right. Well, the estate well, changes hands. Well, yeah. that just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it had yeah. the blessing of his estate, and I haven't seen the film by all accounts. I don't think it's the worst film that's been made from a Parker book. Uh, but yeah, it didn't do well, so no, no franchise is forthcoming. Well, we're very excited to get into uh, these ones here. And I was also excited to see that um, it looks like Robert Redford once also played the character. How's that one? The, the Hot Rock? So the Hot Rock is not a Parker novel, but uh, the origin is similar. Uh, Westlake's other long-running series was about a character named John Dortmunder, uh, who Redford played in the Hot Rock. He actually started that out as a Parker novel, but the Parker novels are very terse, very, you know, sort of to the point, emotionless, not a lot of time for comedy or personal business. Uh, so he started writing this plot in the Hot Rock about a gang of thieves that try to steal a precious jewel, and they keep losing it, so they have to steal the same rock like five times, and it gets to be a really terrifically funny farce. But he thought, this is just too funny to be a Parker book, so he created this sort of sad sack uh, uh, thief character named Dortmunder, who he ended up writing about 20 novels about, too. Um, and oh the Hot Rock God. was... Uh, was uh, is, uh, there are other Dortmunder films. I don't think any of them are terribly well-received, um, but The Hot mm -hmm. Rock is still, uh, I think, well thought of. Nice. Well, I'm definitely going to be checking out more of uh, Donald E. Westlake, and I'm excited to get yeah. into the films we're going to be talking about today. Um, and uh, that being said, I think we are just going to jump right into it. We are going to start off here with Point Blank. Point Blank Rage. What do you want from me, Walker? You're supposed to be dead. Know the mental agony that overwhelms and consumes at point-blank range. Experience rapid-fire action at point-blank range. Things aren't done this way anymore, Walker. Let's be reasonable. All right, we are talking Point Blank, the 1967 American crime film directed by John Borman, starring Lee Marvin and co-starring Angie Dickinson, uh, Keenan Wynn, Carol O'Connor, um, adapted from the 1963 crime noir pulp novel that Brendan mentioned at the top of the, the show by Donald E. Westlake, but the particular book here is The Hunter, which he wrote under the um, creative name Richard Stark. Um, now, Brennan, you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is Borman's first Hollywood film, American it's his, film. 
Yes, it's his, it's his first Hollywood film. The only film he had made prior to this uh, was a, a film that was a vehicle for the Dave Clark Five. Um, I think called Catch Us If You Can, something like that. Uh, so it was it was very interesting that he was uh, selected to make this movie that was product of a meeting between him and Lee Marvin when Marvin was on the set of The Dirty Dozen uh, in Europe. Yeah, and, and we this is going to be, our, I think, our third time talking about Lee Marvin specifically because we already have done an episode on The Big Heat where obviously he has that very infamous scene where he smashes the coffee pot over Gloria Graham's face and Good he's Lord. very scary in that film. He has quite a presence. And then we also talked about him on The Dirty Dozen, which we liked him a lot, which which also it would have came out the same year as Point Blank here. So uh, yes. the production on this must have been pretty fast. And from what I understand, the basic thing that happened there was that the studio they thought that Lee Marvin was really perfect for the role and they really wanted him, and the, but they, they couldn't really reach him or contact him. So that was how John Borman got involved, is that John Borman um, was already um, in Europe where he could go to the set of The Dirty Dozen and talk to Lee Marvin. And both of them, from what I understand, were not fond of like the actual screenplay that had been written like for the studio, but they both were like, this character is really interesting. And then they decided that they wanted to make the film and they both agreed to make it. And the way that Borman tells it is that he went into the executive office with Lee Marvin, basically having recruited him for them. And Lee Marvin went in and said, so I have script approval. So I have casting approval to the executives and the executives were like, yes, we want you so bad. We will give you approval on all these things. And he's like, great. I defer all of my power that you have just granted me to this man right here, John Borman. so then john borman found himself making his first hollywood film with more power than like you know even like masters would get uh (laughs) you know after making a couple of films because they just wanted lee marvin so badly uh which is how i think we got this film that does feel so unique and singular in 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 terms of its style that was what struck me like immediately there are a lot of things that Borman did on this film, I think, that drove the studio crazy. I'm going to be pulling a lot, by the way, from the um, commentary track that's on the Point Blank Blu-ray, which Borman actually did with Steven Soderbergh, uh, whose oh, film, awesome. The Lie Me, I think is, is highly influenced by Point Blank, as he acknowledges. Um, it's a similar sort of genre piece that also plays with editing and the idea of memory. But yeah, Marvin was a huge star at that time. You know, he had won an Oscar for Cat Baloo, which is kind of funnily, you know, very a, a, a musical comedy role that's very far from the character he plays in Point Blank. But, you know, he'd had starring roles in The Professionals and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. He was about to have a huge hit with The Dirty Dozen. And he'd also been the lead on 100 episodes of a TV show called The M Squad for a long time. So he was very well established and he was a major star. And, yeah, he had all that producer power, which he, you know, deferred to John Borman. And it seemed like it was a real collaboration where both men really respected each other and the contributions they made. Yeah, there were a couple cool stories that I that I heard about you know, sort of like Lee Marvin just sort of like making acting choices on set. And because he knew John Borman well, John Borman would just kind of like let him experiment with it and they would find something that wasn't in the script that they really loved. Um, like, for example, that scene that I I really took to uh, and didn't realize until, you know, reading about it after that that was what happened during it. But like when he breaks into like his wife's uh, house and it's supposed to be like an interrogation scene where he's basically like beating information out of her and instead he just sits on the couch and he's completely silent 
and his presence alone scares the shit out of her so much that she basically just starts like spilling everything and he just is completely emotionless completely like blank face sitting on the couch and you can just sort of like feel the rage in you know some of like the filmmaking gestures that kind of like build you up to there like that sort of like um cross-cutting as he's like walking through the airport and his footsteps like become sort of like the percussion and the momentum Mm. until he like breaks through her door in like slow motion and she's like screaming and he goes in and like shoots the gun at the bed and almost uh, again borman's sort of like his, his editing patterns and his sense of like stylistic flourishes as he's doing what are sort of like typical crime pulp story beats is I think what made this film like really stand out for me because again this would be a scene of you know sort of like Humphrey Bogart breaking into you know sort of like the woman's house and being like you got to give me the information doll or yeah. you know and it, it, <laughs> instead Borman you know, finds a way to almost make it kind of creepy and sad and just kind of strange. And it has this very hypnotic sort of like overall vibe to it. And just how like, uh, how suddenly, uh, Lee Marvin's character is just in the zone to kill. Like it's just crashing through the door, not even looking at like where Reese would possibly be laying down on the bed and just firing five shots without even thinking about it. Like it's just, it's, it's such manic behavior and angry behavior and rageful behavior. Um, and it's such a, I mean, it's pretty, it's one of the, uh, this happens what, like in the first probably five, 10 minutes of the movie. So this is really an introduction to the character. Uh, yeah, it happens right after the, the introduction, which is obviously him, sort of like being betrayed but in like a, a sort of like non-linear yeah sort of flashback i was very structure. disoriented uh for uh, like i'd just say like the first five minutes over because of that because of that structure it felt very uh i guess like what uh one of you guys said earlier was kind of like it was it was uh, a memory right it's it's kind of um it's mm-hmm. distorted a little bit it's cutting a little bit it, it's not showing the entire sequence as it were um, no, the the whole movie honestly feels like we're experiencing this particular like pulp story through like a fractured yes. mind, and he int- he in- he introduces that concept to you very early on with the Alcatraz prison sequence, where like his you know an old friend comes up to him and is like you know uh, I got some easy money that we can make, we can perform a heist, and his friend is also very deeply scared because he is in debt to uh, a group who is sort of uh, very mysteriously just referenced as the organization who we assume is some sort of, you know, organized crime group who he owes money to and that they are going to kill him, you know, if he doesn't reclaim this money. And he tells, you know, Lee Marvin's character, he's like, you know, we're, I'll split the money with you. And, you know, they're going to, they, they do this on Alcatraz. And from what I understand too, Alcatraz had been closed for a number of years okay. too. So it wasn't it was actually, actually like a, a working prison anymore. Yes, and this was the first time I think a film had actually shot on Alcatraz. So wow. A- well, I mean, the location work in general for the whole film is like very gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and especially the way that Borman just really highlights like these really sort of like stark concrete structures and architecture and like the barbed wire and the way that he uses sort of like the lines of, you know, the, the, the way that the locations look and stuff. And he always finds ways to make 
you know, sort of Lee Marvin, who himself is, uh, we've talked about before, he's a very large man. He has a very imposing <laughs> yeah. presence just on camera in something like The Dirty Dozen or The Big Heat. Um, but in here, you will find Borman, you know, he takes advantage of that um, by making him, the way that he moves through a scene, the way that he, you know, will walk into a room and immediately, you know, just start, like, assaulting someone or something. And, uh, like, so- you know, he, he, he definitely takes that to his, his advantage. But the way that he also dwarfs him in like these very negative space oriented compositions of like Lee Marvin, for example, like hanging off the barbed wire fence on Alcatraz, on Alcatraz, like with like the bright blue sky in the background or him like swimming, looking like he's about to like swim his way off the Island, which then cuts to him being on the boat where he's listening to a tour guide, basically explain that swimming off the Island is basically impossible. And they think sort of (laughs) in sort of like a historical sense that maybe like two people have done it before, but nobody knows if they even survived it because no one's found them ever since. So it, it, they they do give like this character like a larger than life kind of presence while at the same time being like this guy is very clearly sort of like trapped in some sort of like concrete hierarchy well, and, that is just a river of money and death. And speaking <laughs> of that like that kind of concrete hierarchy too that like the sound design in one of the sequences when he's traveling uh, in the in the beginning where they like at first it's it's him down this like long hallway and you hear the the footsteps echoing and then as that yeah. scene progresses the 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 footsteps keep going in the sound but it shows him like driving to certain places and doing other things and it, mm-hmm. it kind of gave me this vibe where it's like he's just he's always progressing you know uh, he's always set in his ways he's on the he's move on the move exactly <laughs> yes. exactly and, and we uh, haven't talked about it but the the name of the character in this film as we said none of the uh, almost none of the films have the character named Parker his name is Walker uh, which you know really <laughs> invokes the sense as you say of a constant forward motion but it also yeah. invokes the sense I think of like a night walker or some sort of restless spirit because the film also suggests that he may be some sort of vengeful ghost you can read the film that way, uh, where he's constantly he's disrupting people's lives, but he you know he rarely sort of acts on them directly. He rarely kills anybody directly, uh, and there's the sense that he's walking through a world that he doesn't really quite belong to. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's also like any time that he interrogates somebody or anything, it's always like very to the point. Here, it's just like one-worded questions and things like that like he he very rarely elaborates on things and it, and it really explains himself uh so it, it kind of does give that kind of ghostly feel of just one lone man on a on one mission and that's his hyper focus uh and it's yeah well and, and and what's kind of funny is that like the mission is obviously that he is after the 93,000 that he is owed because that heist goes wrong with with you know his his friend Reese um, and his, and Reese um, shoots him to take all the money to pay back the organization, and then also takes his wife. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so he, he was he, he was very ultimately betrayed. We'll say in the the opening sequence of the film, and the rest of it is him just sort of getting revenge for that. And there is sort of like again because of the way that John Borman is constantly in his style, like sort of like having these strange interruptions of of sound and image based on sort of like where his mind is at, but also where you know what his body can like sort of physically do and it it does it does start basically when he gets shot in his prison cell which is an image that we 
like returned to so many times throughout the film. He actually returns to it once waking up after having sex with Angie Dickinson's character, which is uh, something that summarizes his character a little bit. Um, but when, when they have that thing where I think he, he's like falling and he thinks that he's dying, he's been shot. He looks up at like a stain on the concrete on the wall and then he says something along the lines of, did this happen? A dream, a dream. And then we get images like frozen in time of like the steel grates and the broken glass and crumbling walls and the barbed wire and like everything about this prison. And that basically just launches you into he's going to escape from that and he's doing it for this money. But you never get the feeling that he really wants or really needs money you never get the feeling that like he's really interested (laughs) in that or that honestly he's even that particularly like emotionally enraged by the betrayal or by like almost like a principal thing it's just like he has to die it's an ethical ethical thing for the character his professional ethic is owed that money yeah, and there's the incredulous reaction of all the gangsters in the movie. You know, like you're t- you're antagonizing this national crime organization, people all over the country who want to kill you uh, for ninety three thousand dollars. It doesn't seem like that much. Obviously, it's too much for them to just pay him off and make him go away at first. Uh, but it's <laughs> not. But it doesn't seem like enough money to risk this kind of uh, havoc. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I also like too that the series of events of him like getting a lead and going to the next person. Like he goes to like a used car salesman who he thinks was maybe Reese's contact and who Reese owed money to. Um, <laughs> the way he, he interrogates that guy. It's just unbelievably <laughs> yeah. hilarious. The the stop start stopping and starting like the, the car and the yeah. shot too because the camera's like trying to follow the car, but the start stop kind of makes it a little bit shaky as well. And it's and just, the dude's just rocking back and forth. Yeah, like he couldn't even answer him like if he tried. Right. Like, he's some being really so interrupted good by it. physical comedy yeah. to that. Honestly, it was pretty funny. Yeah, but the thing that's also kind of farcical about that whole situation is that every single person he goes to knows nothing. At, like yeah. at, at most, everyone knows the person that they report to. Yeah, they know like a name. But, like that's nobody. It. Yeah, nobody knows like the next way. Like he's basically talking to all the different people who sort of like have various levers on sort of like right. this this sort of like track of money that he's trying to sort of like unravel but like nobody knows anything other than like the next higher up guy who they report to but every time some he goes up to someone and he beats them for information they they genuinely really don't know anything and they're like <laughs> what I, I don't i don't have the cash to pay you i give all my cash to that guy and then i give all my cash to the next guy and it's so funny how every time he goes to one he's just like someone's got to have my money I, at one point near the end he literally just like just goes someone's got to pay i don't <laughs> yeah, care who just, it is one of you at this point then- <laughs> it's not even a personal grudge just give me my fucking money <laughs> yeah there's a, a theme in these and these early novels like i said uh, the hunter and the outfitter uh two of the first three novels in the series that deal with uh they both deal with this national this nationwide crime organization and there's a real theme that westlake invokes in the books about how the nature of these massive organizations the nature of these sort of corporatized groups is that they make themselves weaker and more vulnerable uh by the by their nature they're no match for a determined professional uh Mm. like parker like walker uh, because all these people have 
Uh, there's a great passage in uh, the novel of the outfit where he talks about this, where you know eventually people stop thinking of themselves as criminals. They just think of themselves as guys at desks, um, and they're just no match for somebody who has like, an entirely different set of personal ethics. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, you, you you definitely feel that in in this one because like Walker as like the way that Borman captures him as a physical presence is very different than the way that Flynn does. Cause Flynn is, Flynn is kind of, uh, we've talked about him a couple times too. He's a very sort of lean and blunt filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Borman, he is all about, you know, how style is going to physically capture, you know, what he's trying to tell in, in his story here. And there is a sense that, you know, Walker is just this interrupting force and that every time he goes into a scene, you know, he is completely disrupting every element of it. Like that scene, for example, when he goes into sort of like the club and there's sort of like this, like uh, there's this light show sort of like happening on and a band playing. And that basically ends with him sort of like maiming people in a like psychedelic, like visual light show that's basically happening with like faces and colors everywhere. There are and certain also, shots of, love, of just him in the shadows, having his face like lit up and like this hellish, like orange and also disrupted by like, you know, sort of like these black spots and stuff like that. And, and, I, I also, and he just goes in there and freaks everyone out. And I love that, that during all of this, this chaos that is showing with, with Lee Marvin's character, they go back mm-hmm. to the singer who is doing this, like, incredibly high-pitched almost screamy yelly kind of vocal style and he's and and it keeps cutting back to him going to different people in the audience and doing this like back and forth vocal thing and none of the people in the audience can pull off what he's doing so it kind of leads to like a little bit of uh some more some more comedy honestly while while some of the like this and and while he Lee Marvin is fighting, they have this like projection thing going on in the background too. Is that that yeah. same scene with the with the woman yeah, the the women yep. screaming? So you have yep. all of these images that are kind of contradictory in a in a way. They but they meld really well together because like you have the violence that Lee Marvin's dissing out while you have the projection of a screaming woman in different colors, and then you have the singer who they keep cutting back to as he's like screaming in people's faces and it adds to like uh, once again a bit of a f- some physical comedy the way that the singer's going about and then back to the darkness which is Lee Marvin just beating the shit out of people in a dark room with psychedelic and colors it, it's just madness <laughs> and a terrific visual idea expressed in that shot that you know one of the most memorable shots from the movie of course is that shot of the colors and the projection washing over Walker's face in the background there's Again, this idea of him as a ghost, as a figure who doesn't really exist, in that shot he becomes sort of prismatic as colors sort of pass through him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The sense of him as a transparent or immaterial figure is really vividly illustrated. Yeah, I think they even yeah. have a couple really cool shots of where that the projection of the, the women screaming goes like right onto his whole body or face as well, which <laughs> is a very cool image. Yeah, no, Borman makes a lot of really interesting, you know, composition choices like that. And sometimes he'll just have, like, the entire frame, like, taken up by, like, the blinking light on a cop car as, like, an establishing shot. Again, not a wide shot that tells you where you are. It's just, like, here's this darkness lit up by, like, this one bright light. Or he will, you know, use the location of a scene to his advantage. Um, 
where he'll do like a strange like whip tilt on like you know uh, a building that has like just this strange architecture to it uh that goes like up because again there is sort of like not only is there a forward momentum there's also like an upward momentum a little bit uh to the whole thing that 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 walker himself is sort of climbing um the organization but also in sort of like almost like a physical way too but then there's whole shots of just like shots like looking through grates or various spaces just being obstructed there's one shot that fucking blew my mind which is when they go to the la riverbed where he's um infiltrating a money drop situation where he's basically trying to get to the next guy he's like i found the one car dealership guy so who does he give his money to that is kind of like what he's hoping to sort of find out from from there because I think they gave him money, but really it wasn't actually money. It was just a whole bunch of like paper that they were meant to pay Walker off, but really they were going to snipe Walker in that situation. But he sends out the other guy to basically pretend to be him briefly. And he's like, like wait, I'm not guy? Walker. One of, the, one of the big like boss yeah. dudes too. Yeah, it might have I, been I think the dude it was that one set of, out the hit. I can't remember exactly. He no, he's the guy who works in the corporate office space who he like whispers in the secretary's ear to get oh, into his office. Oh, that's a great sequence. Yeah. Yeah, um but in the riverbed there's an entire shot where 80% of the shot is just the riverbed and all you have is um lee marvin's disembodied head like hanging over the edge of the (laughs) riverbed yeah uh basically looking over because he he senses that there's something that's going to go on here and he's right and that dude is like shot by a sniper and then we see like an over the shoulder shot where 90% of the frame is taken up by like this dude's shoulder and his sniper rifle as he shoots the guy from sort of far away and then there's like a big wide shot too of the riverbed where like all of the fake money he like kicks it down the what looks like it's like going down the drain as it like comes towards the camera and lee marvin is just there holding his gun um you know completely alone in this sort of like concrete structure where like sort of like the rest of LA is like entirely behind him sort of implying that this is like an endless concrete hellscape almost. Yeah. (laughs) He's uh he's the 10,000 pound gorilla, right? Climbing the asphalt jungle. And, uh, (laughs) Borman, Borman uses that scene in the commentary as an example of Marvin's, uh, cinematic sort of instincts because in that shot, uh, and they hadn't set it up this way, but Marvin knew to do it uh, as the money uh, travels towards the camera uh, downstream. Marvin knows to exit the frame at the exact same moment uh, that the money does. Uh, he just has that sense wow. of timing for the shot. That's unbelievable. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, as being someone who's not framing the shot, I don't even know how he would be able to know that. But yeah. good for him, man. Yeah, no, he's, this is like, uh, like, again, this is just a, a thing where, like, I feel like I, I I read up on some classic reviews of the of the film, especially when it came out, because it seemed like this film got appreciated, like, a couple years sort of, like, afterwards after it yeah. came out. Yeah, 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 but when it first came out, people were kind of like, yeah, you know, it's, it's another crime film. And, like, people were, I think Ebert in his review was basically like, it's nice to see one of these films that's, like, not, like, another spy film, because they were making so many, like, Bond ripoffs at the time. Uh-huh. Right, yeah, <laughs> 60s, um, yeah. But yeah, he was basically like, yeah, this is just, it's a pretty good classic noir film. And I was sitting there going, and how does someone think that 
and like watch a classic noir and then watch this and you don't see how style like what Borman is doing with the camera and how completely yeah. different it is. He almost has like a new wave sense of like experimenting with the editing, with the composition choices. Like especially by once we get you know closer to the the end and stuff, where where as things are happening, he just starts to cut in like images of the past and and uh, like like for instance, he'll start to when he's asking people like you know where's the money like give me my money, uh, it starts to cut to all the times that he said that to other people, and so you start to get this <laughs> yeah, like you know I love that yeah it's awesome it's like a pile up of all the all these moments that have been leading up to this um, and really mm-hmm. like. Uh, I guess well, he doesn't and, necessarily and, and, come and it's just, empty, there, but there's a cyclical element to it, right? Too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because he's just like he's caught into this thing where he is just asking the same questions. He's doing the same right, thing. People exactly. are. Uh, I, I think four different people say you got to trust me, Walker. At some point, and all he gets is flashbacks of like Reese saying you got to trust me before <laughs> he shot him. Yeah, <laughs> he's like I've learned my lesson. No way. Yeah, that's that, that's definitely where it like comes to a fold, and like when when he starts getting, you know, finding himself in the same situation over and over again, and it does get into a sense of sort of like meaninglessness. You're like, what is the point at this point? Other than you know, he has a sense of sort of like professional, as Brandon put it, ethics, and a sense of a professional. There's a, a I, I guess, a code, but also a sense of, um, like he also has a lot of clever, I guess, instincts about it at the same time. Yeah. But, at the, and there's this weird thing where like, you know, he's going through what should just be a, a passionless and what is, you know, for him sort of like an, an emotionless ordeal. It, yeah. But it, it's overtaken a lot by like his brutishness and his sense of sort of like violence. Like there is a set, there is that, that scene too, where he does come across, I think it's Reese. Mm-hmm. Um, and he pulls him out of the bed Oh yeah, uh, and points the gun at the him. Penthouse. That was just like an, yeah, that was just an an incredible. And that's that um, same moment scene where where they have a little scuffle on the on the balcony rooftop, and then he it, he unravels the the sheet, and the guy just flies off of the <laughs> building <laughs> on, right onto yeah. the street. It's a yeah. it's a pretty crazy shot too, like the of the guy falling. <laughs> like it's it's, it's pretty a, well done. It's a yeah. It's a very sort of uh, new kind of special effect where they sort of insert the shot of him. You know, I don't know. They've got a, they've got him on like a wire spinning around or something, and they're in right over a shot of the street that he falls onto. But it's another very pointed instance, right, of the violence in the film not being something that happens necessarily um, because of Walker directly. He may he may intend to kill Reese, but he doesn't intend to kill him at that moment. He just. Yeah, and it, what's crazy too is that he does really have brutal a, uh, a heartless reaction to it because I believe afterwards he goes back downstairs and I think it's the the girl that he's with. Uh, she says like, yeah, "What Angie, happened?" Angie Dickinson, who he used as bait to like get Reese in. Yeah, to bed. and he it just replies with his wife's sister. Okay, mm. and he just replies with a man fell, and that's it. <laughs> and it's just yeah. like like there's just such a he's so cold and just heartless about it all and all the all the violence that's that's being dished out regardless of if he means it or not it's just you know it's definitely happening because of his uh his reign of terror <laughs> well yeah because then that that leads them to the mansion and he takes angie dickinson to the mansion angie dickinson's like very um you know upset at just you know how sort of like cold and and ruthless right. that he can be 
um, especially to like people that they have, you know, sort of like a, a, a mutual affection for. And when they go into that mansion and there's just scenes of him like watching TV and then various household appliances that Angie Dickinson keeps turning on to like annoy him and him having to like turn them <laughs> off. And then there's like the house lights. She starts like blasting music. And then it, there's like the scene where he's almost like chasing shadows a little bit. And then she comes over like what what is like an intercom like in the house. But it's really just sounds like, again, sort of like that ghostly disembodied voice aspect it has where she's like, you're played out over finished what would you even do with the money what are you doing here why don't you just lie down and die and then that gets him that is what gets him romantic because then he grabs her and you know they they um have sex but it's done in again uh, another john borman like stylistic freak out thing where they're rolling in the bed and he rolls and then it's him and his wife and then they roll again and it's reese and his wife and right. then they roll again and it's Angie and Reese and which is just leading him to like I guess he can't feel involved with her or he can't trust her because he couldn't trust his wife so it's turned into a, an, an all women thing for him <laughs> a <laughs> yeah. little bit just sort of in like the visual thing and then that is when he wakes up and he's in his his sort of what should be like you know his post coital bliss that his character should be in is interrupted by the memory of him being shot again. And then those guy breaking in, which launches into all of the memories flooding back as he's being like, someone's got to pay me. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm wondering if that's the first time such a montage has been done of that love scene, because what I'm realizing now, I just watched this again the other day, but that's the, it's the same as the, uh, uh, the montage in uh, Hannibal season two. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but there's yes. a similar, there's yes. a very awesome. similar scene, right? Where the uh, Hannibal's making love and so is Will, and they're all the characters all of a sudden start to sort of blur together in the sequence directed by Vincenzo mm-hmm. Pelli. Um, but I think this this whole this whole sequence and the idea of uh, Parker sort of being lightly, I think, domesticated in some way here. You know, ties into this idea of the character, you know, maybe being dead or half alive and trying to become real in some way. You know, there's a sense that, like, the money will solidify him, perhaps, or it will give him some sort of base uh, to stand on. You know, the opening sequence or the opening pages of the novel is a really incredible sequence where it just opens with Parker escaping from prison and uh, sort of just using his wits and the clothes on his back to steal some money, steal an identity, and establish himself in society. And the movie sort of readapts that into, as we said, the very impressionistic opening sequence, but there's a sense in which the entire action of Point Blank is about that process of trying to, you know, become human again. And Borman talked about on the commentary how uh, this was some of Marvin's contribution because one thing that quite obsessed Marvin or that he thought about a lot uh, was his war experience and the experience of belonging to a world that was quite violent and then having to come back to civil society and feeling out of place in it and that's something that very much informs the Walker character yeah, yeah no, and, and that, that definitely gets into, again, how he feels like he's walking on, like, his almost his own, like, surreal plane, where everyone else is, like, there's they're operating on a sense of sort of, like, a domestic life, and then there's, like, an organized crime life, and everyone who, you know, has his presence, um, you know, sort of walk into the frame into their scene their life is just basically ruined by him yeah. or you know he he completely just upends you know whatever the established status quo is of that scene like especially we that that scene where he walks into that office building 
and that secretary, he goes up to her and there is like sort of like this genius moment where they don't actually reveal to you what he says to her, but just in her performance and the way that she reacts and the way that she buzzes him in. Yeah. And he runs in and immediately again, just there's so many scenes of him walking into a room and immediately just starting beating the shit. out of someone. And for them, there's like no context. <laughs> right. So they're just like sitting yeah. in their office, just kind of like, ah, oh, it's a Wednesday. <laughs> I'm just, I'm going to go home to the kids. And then all of a sudden some fucking old, like six foot five guy busts into the door, beats the shit out of you and kills your boss. It's just yeah, he's he's just he's just a completely physically disruptive force, and John Borman <laughs> captures it by having almost like a fracturing, disruptive sense of 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 style and editing at the same time. Yeah. So it 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 all it all sort of like comes together into he has to repeat the Alcatraz drop because they were like, look, I can't, I don't have the cash to pay you, but what we can do is if you work with me, we can rob the exact same drop at the beginning, and it's going to be the same amount of money, dude. So you'll yep. get it. Yep. And they <laughs> it, even have it, it, like the imagery, like the helicopter comes down in the same spot and you mm-hmm. know, he's, he's but, 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 but he's shadows. now trying to manipulate the surroundings a little bit more. He's right. like, I know this space a little bit better and I'm not going to get betrayed again. Yeah. So he does the exact same technique he does in the, in the riverbed, which is he sends the guy out instead of sending himself out. Right. And the uh, guy who owns the mansion is, killed by sort of the detective he's been working with behind the scenes the whole time because this detective is like look you want Reese I want the organization if we work a little bit together we can get both but it turns out that that guy who was pretending to be a detective was actually just another member of the organization who was trying to sort of you know do a little bit of a clearing so that he could take over and he basically used and manipulated Walker as a force to basically just kill all of these underlings who were very clearly bad at their job <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so that he rivals. can take over. Yeah. So it was clearly just a, uh, the whole thing was just a power play and he reveals to Walker that that's what he was doing. And Walker, very similarly to the sort of like psychedelic assault sequence, he just stays in the shadows and the yeah. dude leaves him the money and is like, you know, you know, you can take your money. Here's that thing that's going to, you know, welcome you into, as Brendan put it, into the real world or into civil society. Here is the tangible thing that will achieve that for you. And Walker has just realized that, like, everything that he's been doing so far has just been another sort of, like, um, I guess a sort of artificial play, another surface that he has pulled back so he just sits there and disappears into the darkness basically which again contributes to brendan's idea about him sort of being a bit of a a, a ghostly disembodied yeah. presence a little bit i was gonna i was gonna say that too it was like when when it shows kind of the you know the money in the center with the spotlight and then it doesn't show marvin come out and grab it or anything to me it was and, and the fact that it's also they went that's this is back at at alcatraz again right yeah. So it's like it, it to me it was almost like an offering to the spirit where it's like you don't you, you don't see you don't see the 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 guy come and grab the money or anything. It's like these guys came, they're like, "Okay, Lee, here's the money. Just it's over. You can you can die in peace now. Now you can, you know, go to spirit, the spirit world now." You know, cuz it, it just felt like, you know, this was kind of like Alcatraz was you know his 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 grave in a sense until he went into the normal the the city and then started well, to yeah, wreak havoc yeah. and then coming back he has his offering of the money and then we don't see him again and it is it really yeah. does give that 
that really ghostly feel. It's it's uh yeah. Well, it, it is right. almost like he 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 doesn't leave after the scene where yes. he's shot in his prison. Because then you have that shot get, of Alcatraz again, and it's just that's the shot, and then the credits roll, and and you are left with that feeling. It's like, did he ever leave? It's it's fantastic. I loved that. Yeah, I've I've, I've yeah. kind of struggled well, and, with the and to the, the brief shot before the shot of Alcatraz too, where it's just the guy's corpse and the money sitting yeah. in the spotlight center. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and, and that's it, <laughs> and, 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 that, and that's all you're left with. Yeah, just, yeah, but oh, like, literally, man. it was it was just like the, the everything that he did was just contributing to the river of corpses and money that you know he was trying to in some way. I don't know that he had the mission to dismantle it, but he was effectively you know, thinking that he was dismantling it while on his mission to basically, you know, just, you know, get, get paid back, get, yeah. Re- repay a debt. Well, he becomes implicated in the organization, right? Basically it's, it, the money yeah. no longer symbolizes for him what it did, you know, the resolve, the resolution of this debt, the paying of this debt or this, uh, thing that would give him some kind of independence or material standing, uh, now it's payment for a job done, right? Now he, you know, he in a sense has been yeah. working for this guy Fairfax, played by Keenan Wynn, uh, and I think that I think that's really the main reason he doesn't take the money because he doesn't, you know, a hired gun. He doesn't want to be one of these organization guys, and it goes against his right. his, his personal ethic. Um, but yeah, it's it's quite a it's quite a haunting ending, you know. In, in the novel, originally this was written as a standalone novel, and he was arrested at the end. Uh, and it was his publisher who said, you know, uh, I need him to I need him to you know to live at the end to be free, so that we can make a series out of this. So uh, Westlake wrote this sequence where like he goes to pick up the money, and there's like twenty guys there to ambush him, and he just like murders all of them and gets away. <laughs> nice. No, nice. Yeah. I, th- I think if you want, if you go to the Westlake website, there's actually like a little infographic that shows you the body count for each of the Parker novels. And this is like, oh, wow. twi- this is like twice as big as any of the other ones. I think just because of that sequence. Oh my god, that's crazy. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, yeah, this, this it's a very tricky ending, and I think it may be one you know possibly one of the reasons that the film was not well received at the time, just because it's so ambiguous and mysterious. A very unconventional resolution where you really really don't know what happens to Walker after that. Right. Um, but, it, you know, it certainly works, I think, for the atmosphere and for the approach that uh, the Borman took. Absolutely. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and pivoting towards the reductive rating round, which for you, Brendan, is where we remove all the words, all the nuance, and <laughs> reduce the movie between a number between one and five. But it's also turned into, like, closing statements and, you know, if there was any scenes or lines that we didn't get to that you, you know, wanted to bring up before, yeah. before we wrap Anything up. Some, you want to gush sometime, over. Yeah, any, anything that was kind of... Um, left for us because sometimes throughout the discussion we we end up missing a scene and then we remember it just at the last minute um but for me uh this was a first time watch for me and uh this 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 got the five this got the five for me because i um you know i've i've seen a lot of a lot of noir and this one like stylistically and i had seen a couple bormans now and and watching borman i had always been like you know he does have like this just absolute sort of like surreal freak out kind of style. And we talked about it when we did exorcist two, and I've always just been waiting for the film that it really merges with in a way that it, it like really transcends and and helps Mm. it. And I think that this was perfect where they, they, they looked at a screenplay and were like, this is a, a pulp crime thing and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't appeal to us that much, but if we bend it to, Lee Marvin as a presence and we bend it to me as a filmmaker and we do it in a way that, 
you know, suits our vision of this character, which really jumped off the page at us, even if, you know, the adaptation or whoever wrote the original screenplay, you know, didn't. What Westlake wrote in this character very clearly jumped out at them. And the way that they just captured that and they captured that, you know, a, a little bit of a sense of professionalism but contradicted by a you know sort of like a, an, an impulsive brutishness and violence that it intrib- contributes to an overall sort of like nihilism about sort of like the organized crime that he is pursuing um all of that come to comes together in what is borman doing like this almost practically avant-garde like style and montage that creates this almost like surreal LA that he's wandering in as and as Brendan put it this sort of like asphalt jungle that is frequently also interrupted by something we didn't get to almost this sort of like sun-stroked like modernist art deco kind of like look that he goes for with some of the psychedelic colors and some of the architecture and sort of like the, the the brightness of it which is very different than something we'll talk about in the outfit and I feel like the outfit I haven't read the novels, but the outfit seemed more like in in terms of the look, how I would imagine the novels looking. Yeah, <laughs> Borman seemed like he has done something here, like completely different. That also still serves Walker's constant sense of motion and sort of like this single mindedness that he has that yeah. Borman renders into like this dreamy, hypnotic quality with with the style. And I was so completely taken with it that I I couldn't wait to like rewatch the film because I was, uh, th- I got to confess like for the first like 15 minutes or so I was constantly like pausing and kind of like going back because I felt like I was like <laughs> missing information. Absolutely. I felt like I, 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 I did feel like I was like, you know, this feels like a story that would be done as like a procedural and Borman just could not have done it as less of a procedural, <laughs> at, but more of like this impressionistic character study almost. And this sort of like off kilter, vibe to it and the way that we've sort of broken down how that all fits into his character experience just deepened it even more for me so this one had to get the five for me nice uh yeah i'm gonna give it the uh the high four right now um i really uh to be honest i was a bit like kind of like what you said josh i was a bit disoriented with with this film at first um just with the way that he uses like fragments of memory and kind of just cuts them into scenes uh, some at, at least in the first like 15 minutes, I was a little bit confused here and there on whether we were in like the present or the future or the past or what was going on. Uh, yeah, well, and, and, and actually, too, um, that reminds me of one scene that we didn't get to. But you know when he breaks into the house, yeah, and he grabs her and then he shoots the bed. Yeah, I forgot too that that he technically shoots that a second time, and it's actually different in the flashback because he shoots it in slow motion, okay, so that yeah. you really get the impact of it. But technically like the continuity is not right because it's like slightly different because mm-hmm. he technically went in and shot at a separate time. But that just adds to the yeah. like weird disorienting fractured mind thing that Jamie was just talking about. So it's just the, again, he, he even like intentionally fucks with your, your brain a little bit. Even with things so that he's going. already established. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. It's, uh, which makes it even weirder. Yeah. It really <laughs> makes you feel disoriented and just like confused, but in a way that's intriguing, not in a way that's uh, frustrating or anything like that. And, and as it unravels, you know, that kind of those ghostly elements and the and the fragments of the past and stuff start to make more sense uh, within the context of everything. For sure. So, for sure. Um, but yeah, I just I love that this thought of uh, you know this ghost of a man on a mission for vengeance and to get what he thinks is owed to him 
uh, the you know the final shots of of just the money and the dead body and the spotlight and not seeing Marvin pick it up or anything just gives me a very ghostly uh, and and very kind of scary feeling honestly which I didn't expect to get yeah. from this you know noir uh, so uh, yeah I just I I I'm pretty surprised like I I've been definitely become a fan of Borman um, over just watching his films the past couple weeks. Uh, but this mm-hmm. one really, like, when it comes to the style and everything, I think this might be his his most, like, his best, most realized film. Um, it's uh, it's just, it, it really is incredible how he, how he uses, uh, like, the editing to kind of show you memories, the past, uh, why, you know, why he might be doing these things. And then also what we were discussing, how it all piles up, how it's like, it becomes almost, Mm -hmm. almost meaningless. Collapses into his present single-minded mission. Yeah. It just becomes nihilistic (laughs) and kind of meaningless as it goes on. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. And also I just wanted to, I, I read this and I thought it was interesting because I'm a big fan of, uh, uh, Payback starring Mel Gibson. And apparently, uh, the hunter was also, uh, uh, that's what that that movie was based on was the same yeah. the same book and yeah. apparently Borman wasn't uh, a, a big fan of Payback but there are two different versions of it and I watched the uh, straight up director's cut version I think that's the one that is preferable so maybe maybe Borman didn't watch that one I don't know but anyway I just wanted to throw that in there because it was cool to see well, yeah. Payback well, yeah, related and, and to Borman- this. Borman also, I think, said very specifically that they must have used the script that we threw out. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 he did, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's Which hilarious. Really funny. Very funny. So anyway, yeah, uh, four out of five for now, but I could see this getting the upgrade, so really good film. Yeah, I mean, I, I like Payback. It's, uh, um, I think, probably, I haven't seen the director's cut, but I think probably what it addresses is what was said to be on set, the interference of Mel Gibson, who really wanted to push it more into action comedy territory. Oh, you're getting I more see. of the You're getting more of the Mel Gibson of sort of, you know, the Lethal Weapon era in Payback, gotcha. which is not really quite true to, to Parker, and they made some changes to the ending. Uh, but Payback has a terrific cast of character actors, like David Paymer um, is really good in that film. So I, I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm still very fond of Payback. I think Lucy um, Liu plays a domin- dominatrix or whatever. It's pretty crazy. Good, <laughs> something good like stuff. that. Good stuff. Um, yeah, but it's such it's such a sturdy spine of a story, you know. It's like, it, it can't it can't be totally bad. Um, for me, point blank, I mean, I saw this film I think when I was fifteen or sixteen. This is one of the movies I saw when I was first getting into, I think, like cinephilia properly, and I had found some online communities where you know this was one of the first things that was recommended to me by people who had you know seen a ton of things I had never heard of. Um, and I think it, this was just hugely influential, I think, on what I look for in genre movies and, you know, the importance of having a strong and vivid sense uh, of style on top of a sturdy uh, uh, script. And, you know, I, there, there are some, you know, quibbles I could make with it that, I've you know, I've, over frequent rewatchings I have, um, you know, I've come to see that there's sort of a slackening maybe of the momentum in the third act with uh, Angie Dickinson in that mansion. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. I, like I said, I've struggled with the ending sometimes, which is kind of unsatisfying. But for me, you know, like, I love Point Blank. I have always loved Point Blank, and it's got to be five. Nice. Hell yeah. All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for Point Blank 1967. We're going to be right back, and we're going to be talking about the outfit. You and your damn gun. Don't ever touch this gun again. Hard guy. Thank you, Dillinger. You're nothing but a damned independent, a heist guy. You got no operation. Soft hands behind your head. 
Macklin and Cody, independent professionals who've got the guts to fight back. You will never see a more exciting story of two tough men against overwhelming odds. The good guys always win. <laughs> the outfit. All right, we are back and we are talking The Outfit, the 1973 American neo-noir crime film directed by John Flynn. Uh, The film stars, uh, this time, Robert Duvall, uh, which was sort of an interesting casting, uh, as the uh, Parker uh, character, this time not named Walker, but named Macklin, just so you know that it is not a sequel to Point Blank. (laughs) <laughs> um, but it also stars Karen Black and John Don Baker and Robert Ryan makes an appearance. Um, this is directed by John Flynn, and uh, this is a this has got to be our third time talking about John Flynn I think because so. um, really early on we did Rolling Thunder, which is just personally one of my just favorite like yeah, yeah. Vietnam style exploitation Very films. Good. I think that that is like a perfect merging of Flynn's like very lean blunt and a lot of the time you know sort of um i would say messily violent kind of style of film um but we've also talked about uh maybe not unfortunately because it probably is my favorite seagal film we did talk about out for justice um (laughs) which which is which is just a testament to flynn as a filmmaker that he could make seagal like that movie's so close uh, to being great honestly well, if, if, if Seagal didn't have to edit out everything that you know, <laughs> yeah. would have made it a cool overall crime film and instead, you know, not the Steven Seagal show, yeah. you know, William Forsyth <laughs> is doing some amazing things in He's that so movie. He's so good in that movie. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And Steven Seagal like cut all of his stuff out in the editing room because he was like, oh, this is almost like too much of like a really nasty, yeah. like 70s crime movie. This is too much character. Um, yeah, there, there's too much sort of like, you know, sort of like boys growing up and betraying each other. There's almost like a, an emotional quality to his character. And Steven Seagal is just, it's not what he's there for. He wants to do one-liners and beat people up in a bar. So the <laughs> fact that Flynn could, t- you know, convincingly make him a monster that blows yes. limbs off and chops people with axes and make him actually a little bit of a scary physical presence um is is a testament to Flynn as a filmmaker and and uh you know watching a third Flynn film I'm like you know what this is what just what this guy does yeah uh he's he's really good at it and and with the outfit he he seems to have sort of taken on um the two qualities we kind of mentioned in in Lee Marvin's what's mostly sort of drawn in his performance more than um you know sort of like Borman's um, filmmaking necessarily because Borman does have a sense of you know brutishness with with the violence, but obviously um, Flynn is just a little bit nastier with it, and this does have a sense of you know sort of Walker or I guess Parker at, or Macklin. Oh my God, Macklin, <laughs> Robert Duvall's Macklin. It has him here, uh, more professional, procedural, detail oriented. That he's very good at pulling off these heists um and then you know when they do you know when elements do make them go wrong the violence is very matter of fact it's very sudden and it's very um you know it's not very flashy there's not a sense of like fancy gunplay it's kind of sudden and clumsy in a way um and so that just perfectly matches with 
what Flynn sort of does as a filmmaker. So this is just, again, another match uh, merging of sort of like sort of content and filmmaker in a way that actually, you know, I think, I think translates over very well, but very loosely, this is just, um, in the chronology, Brendan, does, does this one, this one takes place after point blank or the hunter? Yeah. So the hunter point blank being the first novel. So at the end of the hunter and the books, uh, Parker gets away with the money, uh, but the outfit is still after him. Uh, so, you know, uh, in the ensuing book, he can't get away from them for long. And so in this, the third novel, uh, he decides he has to tackle the problem head on and, uh, confront the issue of how to get this national organization to leave him alone permanently. Um, so that he goes, so he goes about this, uh, convoluted plan, uh, to take out the head of the organization and the film, they take a somewhat different approach. Of course, that's not a sequel to anything. And they sort of psychologize the character by giving him a more you know, readily legible motivation by having him, uh, seek revenge for the death of his brother. Yes, although very similarly to Point Blank, which I think is maybe something that's just true to this character, you do lose sight of the fact that he's doing this for revenge for his dead brother, mm-hmm. because you almost don't even get the feeling that he seemed to to care really that much. Again, he's not a very emotional character. He seems more interested in just sort of like the um, the idea of sort of like humiliating the organization or the outfit as they call it in, in this film, Mm -hmm. that there's just a sense of like he, at a certain point, this just turns into an episodic uh, structure of him pulling off heists designed to just annoy the outfit. And that's just all he's doing. And, And he's not like doing it out of a sense of like, you know, he's not screaming, you killed my brother at anyone. He's kind of yeah, like he's completely smirking calm. about how clever he is yeah. uh, through most of the sequences. So like there is the sense that similar to what Lee Marvin was doing with the character that you, you don't even know that he's that upset about the betrayal or he's even really wants the money that badly. Uh, they make a little bit more of a material case for him wanting the money here by getting his partner involved and like, mm-hmm. you know, him recently coming out of prison and obviously not having a lot of money, you do get the sense that, you know, he, he, he probably needs it to do his sort of like Bonnie and Clyde thing, which seems like sort of like the end goal of maybe him as a character in this film is that he just wants to travel around, uh, with, with Karen black and, you know, pull off heists and, you know, go to, go to restaurants. Although that, uh, (laughs) that seems to change by, by the end of the film, it seems, which we'll get to, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely get there. The the main thing, a mind change. The main thing that uh, threw me a little bit in this is that I really liked what Lee Marvin and John Borman did with the character in terms of making him sort of like this sort of almost mythically disruptive kind of like presence throughout the structure of the film. And in here with Robert Duvall, you do get something that's a little bit more. He, he's, he, he's still kind of cold and professional. Yeah. But you do get a sense that, you know, he's a little bit more, um, you know, if, if that whole movie was Lee Marvin trying to make his way to reality, this is just the more realistic version of this character, I feel like. Yeah. Well, Duvall yeah. is just, you know, Duvall's a great actor. And, you know, to talk a little bit about the performance and the character and his particular interpretation, I mean, you know, the one big difference is, you know, Duvall is a short king. He's not physically intimidating uh, <laughs> in the way that Lee Marvin is. He's not the 10,000 pound gorilla. He's balding. He's a little bit shorter. Um, you know, but one thing that he gets exactly right, you know, is 
just the coldness of Parker that is described mm. a lot in the novels. He has these very dark, beady eyes uh, that are very calculating. He rarely smiles. The dialogue really assists in this, too, especially in the first sequence where he's driving with Karen Black and he's just asking her very short, you know, monosyllabic uh, questions um, about what's going on. Uh, there's a, you know, I, I really think of Marvin as the Parker of the books. There's a line in the opening pages of The Hunter uh, where he says that Parker's mouth was a quick stroke, bloodless. And I really think of, of Marvin when I read that. Um, but I, in attitude, I think that, you know, Duvall is exactly right. And he really gets the character's intelligence, which is not something that is used so much in Point Blank. Um, but the novels are married no. so much to Parker's thought process and how he plans and thinks through every step of a heist because his particular genius is really for, you know, being detail-oriented and for understanding the psychology of the people that he's robbing, you know, who can be a particular help to him, who he can intimidate, you know, how to manipulate people. In certain that, I think, is what is really, really well evoked in this edit. Yeah, no, the, I mean, when it when it turns into sort of just like an, an episodic sort of procedural of heists, like that was some of my my favorite stuff, 100%. Like when, when he just like robs uh, the card table, but it, it follows the steps with how he gets his way to the card table mm -hmm. where like he basically like introduces himself as, um, I forget where he gets the name from. I think he gets the, uh, the, uh, his his girlfriend Karen Black leads him to where you know they were going to after prison have someone knock him off the same way they had someone knock his brother off and yeah. there's this whole scene where you know she's driving him to the motel and you know he he waits in the corner for the guy to like come in and the guy goes to like shoot the bed like we saw Lee Marvin do in like point blank and he just like smashes him in the face and starts kind of like torturing him a little bit and then it's revealed that actually Karen Black has been tortured with like cigarette burns and they like threaten to like cut her face off or something it, it's it, Flynn does have a little bit of a sense of like he likes the 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 nastiness even if it's only implied in something like that um, and I, I, I really appreciate that tone anytime I get to see it but there, when when he goes though, I think from there he gets the name Al from the hitman. So then he introduces himself, I think, as Al to the guy who's like watching the door, right? And the guy sort of like comes outside, and then he beats him over the head. And the guy, I think, asks him, he's like, "I can't hear in the one ear, so you're gonna have to talk in this <laughs> way." And then he beats him on that ear, he says, <laughs> which is just kind of like a a, a, a nasty gag. He's like, too. make it on the left side. I've got a bad right ear, and I I, I, th <laughs> yeah. I thought that was funny because it's almost it almost implies too that these people have been doing this for so long that they're kind of used. To this like this is he's been through yeah. this before so he's like all right you're gonna knock me out so you can get to my boss just could you make it the left ear please because my right one's so bad i just that yes. was hilarious to me yeah and then and then he makes his way in. and i feel like if this was done john borman style like john borman always sort of like he faded uh and cross cut his way from like scene to scene right so it was always like a sense of like you know lee marvin was thinking about going and doing something and then, you know, we get these series of sort of like surreal sequences of him like crossing town, like the thing with the footsteps and him right. driving around and then breaking through the door and slow-mo beating someone. So it almost turns into sort of like, you know, again, that sort of impressionistic momentum of, you know, how he's brutishly making his way across town. But here we actually do get to see the character 
plan. We do get to see the character actually make decisions to make his way in, to use the cleverness to manipulate the people, manipulate the space a little bit, and then also kind of just be an asshole about it. Like when he takes the card game, he couldn't, he couldn't like be trying to piss them off more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he even ends up shooting one of the, like the big boss guys, Jake in the hand, I believe too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He says you shouldn't use a girl's arm for an ashtray and yes. then shoots him in the hand. Yes. The heavy, uh, who I think, uh, ordered the hit is played by Timothy Carey, um, who is a veteran of genre films. He was an ace in the hole and the killing. And this is where you start to right. see this sort of pattern uh, accrue where not only does this film have a really great cast, but it almost sets up the outfit as being representative of kind of older style or old fashioned values by having uh, these veterans of films noir like Timothy Carey and Robert Ryan mm. as the big boss represent the organization and this older era of filmmaking while the heroes are of course representative of the 1970s i mean duvall is not a big star yet he had just been in the godfather um but his uh, his partner okay. is joe is joe don baker who uh really had i think arguably i think one as fine a year as any genre actor ever had with this film uh and charlie varick where he plays the antagonist and walking tall which was a legitimate box office hit and made him a star and made his career um uh uh, uh. Mm -hmm. so. yeah and i and i i appreciated his presence a lot because like as you said like um the way that duval is obviously playing this character which sounds like it's correct he's playing it he's playing it very cold and very calculated and uh so joe has to kind of bring a little bit of like a foil to that he's a little bit of like a he's got a bit of like a southern charm yes. to him he's got a charisma to him that you know it, it, it makes them a little bit of like an odd couple mm -hmm. uh, a bit of a situation you honestly wonder exactly why they were, were partners but then it's funny to watch him like bring that occasionally out of Duval like when they pull off a heist and they're both like laughing about how well the heist went as they're like driving away and Karen Black is like freaking out because she just had to like run over two people to save them yeah she gets <laughs> to the that point where she's just like don't touch me don't talk to me she's so sick of their shit it's it's unbelievable it's very uh it's kind of like it's it's kind of funny if you didn't know how it tragically ends yeah it's it's unclear to me in the film how uh, well enmeshed the Karen Black character is meant to be in the criminal life. She does operate as a driver yeah. for them in one heist, but it's not clear to me if she's doing that once, if that's her usual role or what. This is a character who doesn't exist in the novel. Parker is almost always free of romantic entanglements during his adventures, although about halfway through the series, he does acquire a steady girlfriend, but she's almost always at home and left there for the duration. Okay, because I, and I oh, will say this, like the way that, the way that it, it goes down in this movie like they have the uh the the little the kind of shooting sequence with with jake and his crew and and they get away but but she ends up getting shot and and dies and there isn't really like like it's obviously sad but the way that duvall's character uh reacts to it is very just like it it happened you know mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. and we move on Wh which i think just clarified his character more for me absolutely Absolutely, because it's like mm -hmm. he's just. I mean, he treated it as it's like a part of the uh, profession, I guess that he is a part of, and so we just we we pay our respects and we and we move on, regardless of the fact that they had, you know, some type of relationship uh, with each other. So um, mm -hmm. it's definitely treated yeah, that, cold, that, that, and then they move, and then he kind of just moves on to like kind of just being with his partner now. He's just kind of like let's just let's do this heist, you know. We 
uh, and we'll have more nuance around it, but you know, we have that ending shot of them smiling and laughing together as they break out of the, <laughs> out of the last heist and kill and, and they're happy as hell. The good guys always win, you know? Yeah. So, and, yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, and the line at the very end when he, uh, um, you know, since we're talking about the ending, when he, uh, eliminates Robert Ryan's character, as uh, you know, his wife says, "Why did you do it?" And he doesn't mention his brother. He doesn't mention Karen. Black. Right. He says he owed me money. <laughs> he owed uh, me money. Yeah. Which is yeah, which is quite <laughs> clarifying, and it's you know, it suggests that you know these things like the girl or the dead brother, etc. These are really nothing more than screenwriting conventions that are necessary to initiate the action, uh, but they're yep. really not fundamental to who this guy is and what this character is about. Yeah. No, I, I, I found the that she she was ended up being useful because of actually the scene where after um, because the, the scene where she does die does lend a little bit of weight to that scene when the hitmen are posing as cops and then they you know they, they start shooting at each other and then obviously they look in the back seat and she is just like a lifeless husk in the back seat now and there there does lend a little bit of like the sense of the collateral damage of, of what is happening is 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 sort of stated there. Yeah. But the scene after and his reaction to that, where he goes up to basically like the coroner hmm. and the coroner is like, yeah. And he, he's clearly paid him off and knows him well because he's gotten rid of bodies before. And he says, yeah, the death certificate's been taken care of. I wrote pneumonia. And uh, he says, you know, she's, she's a pretty girl. Do you want to see her? And he very bluntly is like, no, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to see her. Uh, I don't want any of her her belongings. Um, you know, I'm gonna let him take care of the funeral <laughs> arrangements. Yeah, that he very clearly won't be attending. Again, he's just very coldly and methodically making sure that she, you know, her arrangements are all taken care of after her death, but nothing beyond that. Yeah, um, and like they have, she's pretty tragic when you really think about it too, because throughout, like even at the beginning, she seems kind of a little bit uncomfortable with the whole situation. And she even mentions, you know, like moving on, getting out of the business, going, getting out of there, that kind of thing. And right before the, the scene where she ends up getting shot and killed, I believe uh, it, she's on the phone with it. It seems like a family member of some kind, because at the end she says, I love you too. And father, she does yeah. seem like, okay, her father, uh, it does seem like there is a, a sadness and also that she has a worry for what's to come in the future. Um, and so like she's definitely a a more tragic character than I would say like Duval is, whereas he's more like well, just he, going he, he, through he, it to get to his ending, you know, goal, and he he'll go through yeah. anyone in order to do that, and including the people he supposedly cares about. Yeah, well, and, and also the, the screenwriting convention is very clearly you know sort of evoking like a Bonnie and Clyde type thing. But what's interesting is at that first, you least, get the yeah. feeling that 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 she is the one who feels that way. And he doesn't is almost kind of yeah, like the idea for sure. Is that she, she's she's more she's romantic almost, about it than him? You're saying she well, and 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 to him, she's she's a tool. She she oh, course, picked yeah. him up from the prison. Uh, she get then operates as the driver, but she she doesn't get to have fun the same way like they get to have fun with the heist after. Right. Um, so there is there is this this interesting thing where he is just kind of sort of like again manipulating sort of like the things around him, and you almost get a sense that he wouldn't even like go back to his old partner unless he sort of like had to. Yeah. And he, another he, tool. Basically. And when he gets him involved. Yeah. A little bit. So there, there is a sense of, of that. And I, I'm curious, is that, is that sort of like something that they address in the books at all, Brendan, or is that something that Flynn has sort of found his way to? 
You mean the relationship between him and his partner? Uh, well, and just being a little bit, um, you know, sort of like manipulating the people around him, even the people who might, you know, we would say that they should be close to him. I would, yeah. I would not. You, you'd be, I would not say that Parker is a manipulative character necessarily with the people who are in his life. Mm. Um, you know, he doesn't like to talk, um, but he is honest about you know what he needs to do. He's going to eliminate the risk to himself. So, if giving someone information would ex- mm. create a risk for him, he won't tell them that. Um, but he's not somebody who's going to manipulate somebody um, necessarily who cares about him, and he has respect for his partner, who in the novel is a character called Handy McKay, who. Um, uh, Parker actually somewhat distrusts because uh, I guess of how sort of fun loving and emotional Handy is. Um, you know, he respects his talent, uh, but he thinks that, you know, Handy is possibly going soft. And I think after this novel, Handy retires to that diner that he's seen at the beginning of the film and uh, continues okay. to operate as a sort of contact for Parker and other uh, criminal operatives. Um, but I mean, he's he does have you know he respects the people who are in his life, but there are not very many people you know in that way. If there's somebody, if, you know, if somebody gets killed on a job, um, you know, and it's going to be a risk for him to take their body away, or if it's going to be too much of a risk uh, for him to take care of them, he's going to leave them there. You know, but you know that's among mm. people who have who share the same ethic that he. Another thing that I found interesting about the way he uses like uh, just things that happen to motivate himself to get to the next spot or, or progress uh, is when, like, at the beginning we see that she's been, you know, the, uh, she was burnt by the uh, the cigarette burns or whatever and that she was hit by, I think it was Jake. Uh, and he goes to Jake after that and, you know, he steals the money and shoots him in the hand and all that kind of stuff. But then later on in the movie, when she challenges uh, Robert Duvall, he just lays her down on the bed and smacks her, like, five times. You know, so like there's yeah. this thing where it felt like, I don't know if he was being like, you know, I'm going to be the gentleman. I'm, uh, you told me that he abused you, so I'm going to go, even though I have my own personal vendetta against him as well. Uh, but then later on, we see him slapping her in the face. So obviously he doesn't really have this principle. <laughs> He's just kind of like used that moment to progress his his vengeful goal or mission. I guess. I thought that was interesting, too. He's a pragmatist. He's an extremely, extremely pragmatic. <laughs> that, ex- that explains most of his actions. I mean, he has very few ethics. Yeah, other. absolutely. It, you know, the, tr- the mm-hmm. treatment of... But, but, it, but, it, but it, it does make the heist scenes very cool to watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I, I really like the way that he, you know, he sort of, like, walks into a room and, like, gauges the scene. I really like the, the very first one that they do that's just at, like, the small sort of, like, restaurant. And he talks to the boss... And uh, they they say something along the lines of like you know uh, they're mentioning that you know Macklin's out there that he's robbed the card game and that you know you, you should be on the lookout that Macklin might come for you next and uh, we know obviously that Macklin is standing right in front of this guy talking to him oh, yeah. um, and 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 he, he says well you know maybe if you send a guy out to kill someone maybe his feelings get hurt <laughs> uh, and and he's like that's no way to look at it it was it was nothing personal and then he pauses briefly and he's like. Fuck, you're Max. <laughs> are you? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like very quickly, the dude behind him tries to like machete him in the back, and he gets them both sort of like locked into the corner, and he's pointing the gun at them, and he starts like robbing them, and to make sure that they you know can't start chasing after him quickly, he starts like making them do push-ups in the corner <laughs> yeah. and counting it, and he's like, I want to k- hear you counting those push-ups when I leave after I leave this door and stuff like that and he just he has a lot of like just very specific sort of detail oriented process to the way that he 
you know, lays out these heists. I think at which one I point he even is makes, really just fun to watch. He, and it's fun to watch because Flynn also is just, you know, he's a very, again, sort of like lean matter of fact kind of filmmaker. So you kind of get a combination of this guy sort of plans that way. And Flynn sort of depicts it that way. And the few moments of sort of like chaos that end up kind of arising are just like, you know, things that wouldn't have been predictable. Like when they tell the guy, uh, the, the chef to like not pursue them. Cause they were like, dude, we're not stealing your money. Like we're just stealing the boss's money. You, you got no beef here. But then that guy does decide that he's going to come after them. But they're like, like that's not technically a pragmatic decision that he's made. Cause they tried to appeal to the prank trip. You know, they tried to appeal to that side of him. So that's what throws them off is if someone is not, you know, sort of like pragmatic in that way. And then that is what leads to, you know, sort of like a firefight that happens outside and, I Karen Black having to run over a bunch of dudes, which is then shot in sort of like this handheld chaos. I think at one point Duval even makes two of the henchmen guys, like the guards, tie themselves up, which is also pretty funny. Yeah, if I remember yeah. correctly. Well, and and, and the, there's one too where they disguise themselves as like mailmen and like maintenance dudes. Yeah, yeah. In order to get into the the one place and in order to get their way out, they have to like pull the fire alarm and create a bunch of chaos that then they can sort of like escape into and stuff like that. Uh, and before they do that, they obviously have to like partially shoot their way out because they realize that very quickly they realize that, um, you know, like the, it was uh, sort of similar to the LA riverbed thing. Like the, the money wasn't actually there kind of deal. Right. Yep. Yeah. So, and, and again, I think that one is also filled with like newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> That's well. That's a that's a late, that's um, a later scene, right? You're talking about when they go to when uh, uh, Robert Ryan ostensibly sets up the pickup for them to be off, and then that's that's different. Yes. That's different than the heist you're talking about. Where uh, oh, there's a oh, Cody it's a different one. I'm combining the, the heist now. Yeah, that one's interesting because I think that one is from the novel, and there is a there is a a, a change there where um, uh, Cody distracts the uh, um, uh, the desk girl and then socks her in the jaw. To knock her out for the duration of the heist, which is, you know, it's not only like I think in keeping with the fairly mean uh, tone of the movie um, where, you know, the treatment of women is frankly not good. And it's not good in the novel either. It's just it's, it's obviously a man's world. But that's also something that I don't think that uh, Handy would have done in the book uh, or that Parker would have approved of. You know, he would have said there's probably a better and less dramatic way of getting this woman to cooperate. It mm-hmm. did, I think, in the book. Right, right. But I do got to say, I really, really loved because um, the, uh, the 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 mansion, the mansion sequence. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, when they when and and I I love too that while they're plotting it out, they're kind of like having drinks, mm-hmm. and they're kind of like, look, there's lots of guards, there's lots of patrol, there's lots of fencing. Getting in is going to be in like incredibly tough. It's possible, but it's incredibly tough. And then they're like, and getting out it's just not even might not even be possible. So when they approach this scene, they approach it like this could be, could be a suicide mission going in. Um, and, and it's only been heightened by Karen Black's death because basically they're like, we were going to do this anyway, but now they've also killed someone who was part of our crew. So we're going to get some more revenge. But also again, he doesn't mention any of that revenge when, <laughs> when it really when comes he down to it, does get it. Yeah. Um, but the actual like slow infiltration where they, uh, get the guards who are like taking like their smoke break or whatever that they're doing and they get their car and then they sneak in and there's a little bit of attention paid to sort of like the visual vocabulary of like the guy seeing these heads come in and he's like, okay, those 
look like they could be the shadows of the two heads who left. And he's a little bit, tiny bit suspicious, but then they drive around the side and they make their way in. Um, and there is just sort of like this multi-layered mansion set where they are, you know, trying to avoid getting into the gunfight super early because they know that they might have to shoot their way out kind of like later. And I just really appreciated the sense of like these two guys really planning their way to get in there and all of these different guards and how to get kind of like around them and stuff like that. There is like, you know, a little bit more of like a lean procedural suspense quality to that, which is just something that you didn't see at all in point blank and which sounds, you know, sort of like the basis of this character's kind of like psychology and thought process a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I also really like the score that goes along with it because it's not like, it's not incredibly uh, exciting. It's, and that's kind of what I expected. Instead they have like, kind of like hovering and lingering just strings and horns that are just kind of going throughout it. It, it, it just gives a very uh, kind of mysterious atmosphere as they're, as they're getting closer and closer to the big boss man. Yeah, I think Flynn was, you know, condescended to in the press at the time and, you know, through most of his career as a somewhat anonymous director. You know, he was mentored by mm. Robert Wise, who gave him his start, who was also a director who's sometimes criticized for the same reason. But he was also um, a collaborator of John Sturgis, and I think those uh, filmmakers share in common, you know, uh, what you talk about, Josh, this style of shooting, which is not just, you know, blunt, terse, whatever you want to call it, but it really clearly signposts the geography of a scene. You know, when he Mm. shoots a scene, you always know where the entrance is, where the exit is. So you get the same information that the characters are taking in themselves, and you always see them noticing details at the same time. The editing in this film is is very good. We sort of skipped over the scene where there's a uh, where Macklin uh, infiltrates along with Cody a horse auction where Robert Ryan's character is with his wife, and they're the really great silent way that he sets up yeah. exactly where Robert Ryan is sitting and exactly where Cody and Macklin are, and him noticing this, and also noticing at the same time that none of his men have observed this threat to him infiltrating the space, and his disappointment and frustration at that um, is all done silently. Um, and I, th- I think that's that's mm. a that's a skill that is you know not common to all directors, and it's something that you know Flynn is really good at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we didn't mention it either, I think, but it actually also was what kind of got me like immediately invested in the film because the opening scene is shot very similarly, mm-hmm. where it's just you just follow completely silently what is uh, you don't know it yet, but it is two hitmen on the way to kill. Um, his brother in the opening scene who was just like on his farm like laying a, a, a brick wall down um, and the way that Flynn shoots that is it's just the process of them stopping at the gas station and then talking to the uh, gas station attendant who we later find out he, they were asking you know where's this guy live where's he at they were asking a local and then they make their way to the farm and they very slowly walk up to him he kind of turns around and he he almost knows exactly what's happening and then they just lay the guns into him and then what kind of happens after that is it's just like the dogs and the horses like freaking out as they sort of like shoot at him mercilessly and it cuts to all these shots of like you know sort of like the laundry blowing in the wind and you know so like there's a there is a a very sort of like um despite the fact that again it's very lean there is like a mood quality to sort of like the silent 
procedural set pieces that he's pulling out. And then it's all interrupted, I think, by like the endless phone ringing because it's um, is, is it is it their mom who was the one who was going to visit? Or is that Karen Black's character who was going? I can't remember in the opening scene who it it's was. It's an older later, woman. I remember that. I think, I think it's it's, uh, it's, it's, it's his I, wife. Yeah. Oh, it's his wife. Okay, because I was gonna say I thought I thought later uh, he talks to her like it's his mom. Yeah, later. honestly, that's what I thought too. <laughs> <laughs> um, because because yeah, they, they she ends up saying like, why aren't you getting out of this? And you know, he's saying you know I want to get something out of my brother's life, and he's saying something along the lines of you know why can't we just leave and and run away and hide? And and he says, well, that is what eddie did very matter of fact factly and he's just like i don't want to turn into eddie where i'm sitting on my farm and two cold killers walk up to me and just fucking blast me away blast me away and by the way that yeah. actress and who that, plays eddie's wife is jane greer who is the femme fatale from out of the past oh cool ah very cool that's a great cameo there's also we, cool. uh, we didn't talk about the diner scene early where cody narrowly avoids the outfits assassination attempt in the diner uh, i love that the, scene too actually yes but uh, his uh, his co-worker there at the diner is elisha cook jr who would have been familiar from a number of films noir very nice cool. yeah I, I i ended up really liking that scene because it's the it's the two guys what do they come in disguised as hunters i believe i think they're trying to yeah hunters. they say that they're gonna shoot rabbits and they have a 12 gauge shotgun or something like yeah that. that's a really funny <laughs> detail i loved some of the dialogue there where he's basically like yeah if you're gonna hunt a rabbit you're gonna explode that <laughs> fucking rabbit with that gun Making so he's basically revealing that they they aren't real hunters or that's not their actual intention with the weapons that they have and it, it's revealed that these are going to be the two hitmen who are going to knock him off but then he reveals that the one patron in his diner it's is the, the sheriff yeah yeah i love their little like threat where they're just like uh oh man you're feeling lucky today you should bet on the races and then just leave it's got this like really kind of just i don't know small town vibe that i that i enjoyed even though i guess these hitmen are from uh, a pretty wide organization have you guys done walking Mm -hmm. tall on the show yet no we haven't done walking tall yet we have to walking tall would be great because you could also double that up with uh another phil carlson joint Got so many films that would be appropriate, um, something like the Phoenix City story, something earlier. Um, but Walking Tall is really fun. It's also, of course, a great uh, pairing with Roadhouse, which is basically the same. Nice. Mm. Actually, the only Phil Carlson film that I have seen is uh, Gunman's Walk, which I loved, though. Oh, okay. I actually don't know that one. Great filmmaker. Mm. Well, it was it it was it was part of the. Um, list of stuff that supposedly uh tarantino played at the new bev when he was like here's all the stuff that i watch religiously leading up to uh once upon a time in hollywood um mm-hmm. because i think that that one had um tab hunter in it who was like one of the sort of like sort of failed actors that he sort of like modeled the characters after <laughs> a little bit okay um and either way i was really impressed with um with uh it's a, it's a very sort of like um, sad generational Western about sort of like inheriting violence and stuff like that. Um, so I'm very excited to check out more, more of his stuff, but I did know that I recognized walking tall as one of his big ones. And I know that people know the wrecking crew, maybe a little bit more sort of like notoriously, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but yeah, uh, 
back to um, the outfit. The only thing we haven't hit about the outfit is just the the brief escape that they do, um, which I which I did think was pretty funny because it, it is it's Joe gets shot during the altercation, and I think that this is actually one of the stronger gunfights in the film too that they have. Like it's really again it's very sudden and nasty and sort of like the Flynn style, um, but it's just like them shooting and people sort of like falling down the, st- the, sk- the stairs. The whole thing is very sort of like cold and a lot of precise maneuvering. Again, the, the gunplay is not, you know, they're particularly skilled. Um, it's just like, uh, and again, they're not like unskilled at it because like they're, they're very good at what they do, but it's just, you know, it's not action movie style. Right. It's just very, it's very blunt. It's very just like, Oh, that person is dead now. And then the buddy gets shot. Joe gets shot. And then Duval's Macklin poses as uh, uh, like a uh, part of the yeah an EMT as part of the ambulance crew, and it's so awesome watching them when when he walks out that all of the authorities like come in coming in and being like there's so many people dead in here we've heard uh, <laughs> people have been calling about gunshots and they were like I've got this guy but go inside there's so many more and he's talking about all the people they just fucking killed and then just straight up Jack like the one out of two or three ambulances that are on scene <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah Eddie, Eddie, Eddie drives, he drives away with them and they, they have this great thing about being like, they were like, man, that was way easier than we thought <laughs> yeah. it was going to be. I, I love that because so many of these, these movies like end in that, that tragic, you know, character moment or whatever. And Shoot for them gone to just, wrong. everything goes completely right for them and then for them to just laugh it off. And then the score changes to this really upbeat harmonica kind of thing. <laughs> And then the, the freeze frame of them just like open the, mouth laughing it's, it's as friends. Midnight, it's the midnight Amazing. run score fades in. Yeah. yeah, just, yeah. It is so, it's so funny in, in really a dark yeah. way. Once you start analyzing everything that, that yeah. happened prior, well, it was, uh, it's it was well, and, and too, b- before they exit too very briefly, um, they appeal to the pragmatism of the guards because they look, they were like, look, we've already killed your boss. (laughs) Stay out of it. He's, he's dead. You're unemployed. (laughs) And what's so funny is we saw that ploy, like not work earlier in the film where the guy was like the chef and they were like, you you don't need to get involved, dude. It doesn't need to happen. And he does. And when these guys just slowly backed off, I was like, hell yeah, dude. Yeah, that's so funny. It's like, well, I'm not getting paid, I guess, so I'm out of yeah, here. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's literally like, <laughs> they're like, yeah, why why die for no one yeah. uh, at this point? There's really no point in, in any of this at any moment. And it's just, yeah, it's it's a really great moment. And that's right before they make their way out of, out of the place, yeah, too. Yeah, that is fantastic. So. Well, to talk briefly about some of the changes that were made. First of all, this was not the original ending of the film. This was a studio mandated ending. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where the original film would have ended. My suspicion is that it probably would have ended with the two of them sitting there in, uh, in the burning house, um, with the sirens coming as they sort of, as they, uh, share a cigarette. That seems like it could have been a very natural ending and almost a kind of haze code. Yeah. I've actually heard that there is a cut of the film that does end there somewhere. Yeah. So that may have been the original ending. I've heard it also referred to as a TV edit, um, but that may, simply be where it was originally intended to end um, with, you know, the sirens yeah. coming in implying that they'll go to jail. <laughs> so the bad guys go to jail. It's a very sort of old fashioned haze code style ending um, to talk about the other things that were eliminated from the novel. Um, my favorite thing about uh, the novel of the outfit 
that in the book Parker's uh, somewhat convoluted plan to uh, uh, get the outfit off his back involves replacing uh, the head of the outfit uh, with another operative uh, who he's agreed uh, with uh, will leave him alone after that. So to humiliate this guy, he calls up all his other criminal contacts around the country and says, I'm sure you know of, you know, an outfit uh, front business that you could knock over if you had the opportunity to. I guarantee you if you do it now, um, I'll get them to leave you alone. And so there's this sequence of like four unrelated heists that are happening simultaneously all around the country for these sort of small jobs that are knocked wow. over by these different side characters. It's really brilliant. You know, you get your hit of wow. you know that sort of heist planning the job, executing it, getting away in these short doses, bam, 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 in the middle of the book. Um, I understand why they couldn't do that because it's too many characters, too many locations, maybe. And they sort of have uh, Earl and Cody do a few different heists in this movie, but that's what I really missed uh, from the novel. There's also a great character who uh, consults with the head of the outfit um, named Quinn, who is something like the organization's head of risk management, who sort of provides that analysis of, you know, hey, you're, you've got an organization full of guys who don't think of themselves as criminals. Um, they think of themselves as jobbers, and that's why they're so vulnerable to these professionals. So those are the two details from the book that I think really stand out and make it, I think, in my opinion, one of the very best uh, Parker adventures. Although I think, like I've said before, this... In terms of you know the spirit and tone and style of the film, uh, you know you not get much closer to, to the Stark writing. Hell yeah! Well, I think that'll pivot us over towards the reductive rating round on on the outfit. This one gets um this one gets like a, a solid to like maybe a, a, a slightly lower four um, from me because I I was a little bit sort of like taken aback by the ending a little bit, I, which I, I I liked it and I found it funny, but I was definitely it it did sort of not uh, work for me in the same way that sort of like the cold procedural detail oriented stuff that 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 Flynn and, and Duval were like really leaning into and how sort of like mean and blunt and sort of like how down and dirty it is with like the grimy process of kind of like what he's doing. Um, so but I, but I did have a really great time like overall with the film. I, I actually did really enjoy Duval and, and Baker and some of the chemistry that they had together with just him being cold and kind of like this exacting professional and Baker just kind of like having just a little bit of a of, of a charm to him. Ebert also mentioned something in his review that I, I like too, which was that there there isn't like any of that what you were talking about that Mel Gibson wanted to do in payback. There's there's none of that like witty banter. <laughs> there is just sense of like a kind of professional respect that they have for each other and uh, the the sense of their craft and a lot of their heists are pulled off you know with sort of just like well-timed maneuvering and like silent nods to each other and i think that that kind of thing really suits flynn as a filmmaker who has just always been on sort of like the leaner nastier sort of side of american crime films and maybe just a little bit too late you feel like Flynn would have been really good about making films in this period of like the early 60s or, or uh, late 60s early 70s when that changeover was happening because yeah. he was still trying to make these films by the 90s when I guess people just weren't trying to make these kinds of films anymore um, 
So, you know, this, this, this was like, I feel like, and it, it, it's interesting too, that again, this would come out and, you know, he, you said that he caught a little bit of flack that, you know, he's, he's making like these kinds of movies in, in the time where they would have been a little bit more respected. And even still people are like, yeah, he's a bit of a journey. I mean, he doesn't really do anything, even though again, there, there is a sense of mood to even the process and stuff that he's doing. So I, I, I had a really good time with this. It, it was missing sort of like for me, what I appreciated so much about what Lee Marvin and Borman were doing, which is just so stylistically insane and so, um, so much of a physical presence. Um, it was something that I hadn't quite seen done in, in that way. Whereas this, I feel like there is a sense of sort of like, there are other crime films that have done sort of like a cold procedural quality. Well, and I do think that this one does it, does it quite well though. And I had a, a good time watching this one for sure, especially when it just got really, sort of mean like the stuff about you know him getting the funeral arrangements done for karen black and the the few moments of like darkness that do appear in here on the periphery are really quite uh dark yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna and also a very very different too i should mention too like uh flynn's grimy shadowy version of this is so different from borman's like sunstroked modernism stuff Mm -hmm. so the fact that two people could look at the same material and just come out with two totally different things like this is always fun to fun to watch yeah uh i'm gonna give it the four as well uh i just i really did enjoy how just blunt and to the point this this movie was and uh even like the way that the filmmaking is 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 kind of like that as well and watching the confidence of duvall's character just kind of go through the organization with almost it seems like no worry like he doesn't seem to have any sense of like this could go wrong (laughs) it just it's gonna work out and that's i think also he's very confident in his craft yes yes (laughs) and i think also that's why the ending works for me a bit more just because um you know we have the sequence where uh the girl is is uh well i'm sorry what's her name again the character's name i I think her name's bet or bet right it's bet yeah uh uh and when she when she dies you know it kind of for me, it seems like he's he uses people as a tool, and that's like a realization for for the audience when that happens, because he's just so cold about the uh, his reaction is just so cold and kind of heartless in a sense, and you can tell that at least she had some type of uh, romantic feelings towards him, even if if he was mostly using her as a as a tool. So when we get to that ending where they're just kind of like the good guys always win and they laugh and, and go on <laughs> with their lives after doing all That's of such this. such a funny last line. Oh, I know, right? It's hilarious. And then the upbeat harmonica, all that stuff. It's just like, it, to me, it was just kind of like they they used the people that they needed to use and now they've moved on and they've, they feel like they've won. And although who knows what they're, you know, is that's going to lead for their characters after this. Uh, I think it, I think it still, it, it, uh, it made the point. Um, and uh, and it's just entertaining. I mean, that freeze frame of them open mouth laughing after all this destruction and chaos and just bleak death happened around them is is very uh, humorous to me. And I think it does kind of, you know, the good guys did character. it again. Yeah. So, yeah, it was really good. I, I really liked it. I I'd give it a four. Uh, and uh, sweet. Yeah. John Flynn, man. He's he's awesome. I like John Flynn. Yeah, for me, this film is just, it's all about the Duvall performance, you know, rewatching it. I watched it a couple times uh, preparing for this. And, um, you know, there's, of course, there are, there are definitely issues. You know, I, I do some, I do really uh, kind of resent the film for 
uh, not just writing in this uh, sort of thankless uh, role for Bette, but also casting an actress as great as Karen Black and giving her so little to do uh, in it. For sure. Um, that's something that really kind of bugs me. Um, as well yeah, as kind of fleshed her out more, for sure. <laughs> we also didn't talk about the incredibly weird, I think, scene in the middle of the movie uh, where uh, a criminal contact's wife accuses uh, Cody of raping her, uh, which is just, it's, it's, it's a very... <laughs> yeah, that is a weird which is, scene. Which is from the novel, and I, 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 it's, it's a very weird scene. I mean, if you want to attempt to justify it, I think it's, it's, it's a way of illustrating uh, the, the way the Parker character will often end up in situations where people have, you know, a lot of their own personal mess going on, and he is just not there for it he needs to get what he needs and get out of there without getting entangled in whatever's going on in their lives um but i mean overall mm-hmm. i just I think I, that I, character I, mentions uh, duval actually having sex with her in the past too though so i think there is like a uh, no, a bit I of think, a past i think doesn't she say i thought she said like well you had no problem saying yes to she's uh, she's talking character. to the brother she's talking to the she's talking oh, to her I husband's see. brother yeah okay gotcha yeah yeah um, but I mean, I just come back to that Duvall performance because you know I could just watch I could just watch him. You know, would it would it surprise you to learn that uh, that scene was Roger Ebert's favorite scene from the movie? <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean, like it's not a, like a badly constructed scene. It's just very weird and obviously you know just brings up a whole lot of territory that I'd, you know I'd rather not get into um, in sort of a lean mean procedural. Yep. Um, but you know, I could watch Duvall. Mm-hmm. You know, with his you know his dark beady eyes and his humorless expression uh just busting up these uh it's it's a it's it was westlake's favorite of the parker adaptations i think obvious reasons uh and uh i quite enjoy it so i would give it a four nice well i think that'll wrap it up for this week that was point blank 1967 in the outfit 1973 thanks so much for uh joining us brendan um if you've got anything to plug this is where we usually have you do that yeah, thanks, guys. This, uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, to plug, while well, at the top of this show, we talked about my podcast, The Roycast, uh, where we cover uh, episodes of Succession. I think we'll have an off-season one coming up soon, hopefully. Um, I've also got a review in the next issue of Cinemascope, uh, so pick that up at your newsstand or get it online. I think the article will be on, hopefully. Um, yeah, that's what I've got coming up. Nice. What are uh, what uh, what what are you talking about on in Cinemascope? Can you say what the title is? <laughs> I am reviewing uh, the Ross Brothers documentary "Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets." Which cool. Well, I'll definitely have to uh, check that out because I actually do uh, have a subscription to Cinemascope, so that'll be coming in. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks so much, Brendan, for joining us and for bringing these films with you. I think in. Uh, one week's time, we are going to be back uh, sticking in the realm of John Borman because we did Exorcist to the Heretic not that long ago, and we did obviously Point Blank this week, and we decided we wanted to get the full John Borman experience, so we decided to wild out, and next week for the patrons <laughs> exclusively, we are going to be talking about Zardoz. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Excalibur. So we are going to be talking about him doing insane sci-fi dystopias and just... Uh, really nasty Arthurian uh, sort of like myth-making filmmaking as well. We're going to do a bit of uh, a, a bit of both. And both films also, from what I understand, were made during that period where he was uh, workshopping his uh, Lord of the Rings film that he was trying to get made. So a lot oh. of them are where all of his ideas for his 
70s trilogy of Lord of the Rings films. They All of his ideas for that, and even literal costumes that he was having made for that those films, all got put into these two films. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> so we're going to have a lot of fun talking about that. There, uh, Zardoz especially is just... So like, uh, weird. It's it's insane. I, I, I said that we just had talked about one of the weirdest movies we'd ever talked about alongside a Borman film. We did uh, The Visitor. Yeah. And then Zardoz, like, you know, a month later, I'm like, my brain's melting again. Yeah, I, we need um, to go back to, like, Arnie movies, man. I'm, I'm melting over here. <laughs> yeah, we're... We're hurting ourselves a little bit. Well, actually, speaking of which, in we're not we're not doing Arnie, but in two weeks' time, we're doing something that we will have to use a little bit less brain power on. I feel like good news. And we're going to be uh, <laughs> back with a special guest, uh, returning guest uh, Steve Carlson. Oh, nice. Um, he is going to be bringing on because uh, we had a vote recently with the patrons for what they wanted us to cover, and they chose the f- the films that they chose, <laughs> but. <laughs> But we can't give them everything that they want. We can't give them everything that they Absolutely want. So uh, one that they did propose was uh, Peter Jackson's Bad Taste and oh, Brain awesome. Dead. And when that that one didn't win, it didn't win. Oh, okay. But I was like, do you know what? Steve Carlson was like, if that episode ever happens, you need to have me on to do it. So I said, Steve, let's just do it. Whatever. It didn't win. I want to talk about Brain Dead, and I've never seen Bad Taste. They're both um, fun. So I want, to, fun. I want to do them both. And so we're going to talk about the early, I, I guess, actually. And <laughs> this always happens to me where I, I plan these double features, and then I realize that they actually do connect to each other. Awesome. Zardoz and Excalibur were supposed to be Lord of the Rings, and Peter Jackson went on to do the actual Lord of the Rings. So we're going to be talking about Peter Jackson's uh, splatter film early phase oh, yeah. over in New Zealand. So it works out. That's killer. That's what we're going to be talking about for the free listeners in two weeks' time. Beautiful. But that being said, I think that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much, guys, for listening, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.